0: Hi everyone, I'm Ben and I'm Will and uh, welcome to this series of Will and Ben the Wildlife Men.
1: Hi Ben, how are you?
0: Not bad, good to see you Will. Are you excited for International Mountains Day?
1: (laughs) I am so excited, Uh, you know how much I love mountains. And um, I saw your photo from the other day of looking out over Snowdonia and I would love to be back at home at the moment seeing all those snow-capped hills, oh, so cool.
0: Yeah, it was pretty spectacular. Um, but I mean, your work in the mountains has uh, taken you to some pretty spectacular places as well. It must ring ring quite true having a a day to celebrate the importance of the mountains for biodiversity. I mean,
1: yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we were half joking about the being excited for mountain day, but genuinely they are so, so important. And as you say, my work um, relies on them so heavily. So through my studies as being an insect migration scientist, I, um, I go to the Pyrenees every autumn and I go there to because they act as like this big, this big funnel basically for the insects. So, I mean, you know, there's trillions of insects which migrate south in Europe every single autumn and they fly down over the plains of Europe using, using winds going the right direction, using a sun compass to tell them which way they go. And then they reach this huge geographic barrier, which is the Pyrenees and the, 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 the hills, the mountaintops, they're far too tall, they're 3000 metres plus and in a headwind day, There's no way that these tiny insects, some of them barely like half a centimeter long can get over them. They simply don't have the flight power. Um, And so what they do is the insects get channeled by the really steep sided mountain valleys and up. And then they go over these passes, which are the lowest points between the mountain tops. And this is this amazing type of geography is really great for us as scientists because we can stand on the these migratory passes these low passes and catch the insects as they go over overhead or in quite a lot of cases actually by our feet because they're battling the um, battling the elements as they go over and oh, yeah it's so important for mountains for <clears throat> so many different reasons so uh, what else there's So last year we were doing some studies using bats and that all these um, insects being funneled through these tiny little um, coals, like millions and millions of insects are going through them. And humans aren't the very first ones to realize this, the local bat species like alpine long-eared bat um, are specifically targeting these sites in order to feed on the huge amount of nocturnal migrants coming through and I mean you know with all the migratory birds the the they also go through these areas and I wonder if that instead of them because I'm sure a bird like a swallow would be strong enough to go over the top if they wanted to but if they went through these mountain passes where the weaker insects are going through that's just like almost endless supply of food right and so I bet they're doing something along those lines but yeah and um, you also of mountains living right next to Snowdonia and the Slim Peninsula right?
0: It's true it's true yeah um, I think anyone living in Wales pretty much you know the mountains have <laughs> such a such a role in our in our lives they're always on that panoramic view aren't they in our in our sites I used to live in the foothills of Snowdonia um, near Taliban uh, not far from Conway before moving to um, the island off the Slim Peninsula Bardsey Island but they are just, you know, spectacular places to be and and so important for such a, a wide variety of, of different bird species. I mean, you know, my main area of interest is, is bird life, really. Um, and um, a very unusual situation in occurs in Scotland where a seabird that you know I absolutely love called the Manx Shearwater, you know this sort of pigeon sized relative of the albatrosses that spends 90% of its life out at sea. They are constrained to breeding generally on offshore islands but actually the biggest colony of this seabird in the whole of the world is on the high mountain slopes of the Rum Cooling Ridge on the Isle of Rum in western Scotland and I don't think a lot of people realise that. There's about 120,000 breeding pairs that breed on this mountainous ridge on the island of Rum. And the only reason they can do that is because they are high enough and beyond the reach of rats, um, which on any other place on mainland Britain, or even on islands where you have rats, the rats will get to seabird nests, they'll eat on eggs, they'll eat the chicks, and they completely decimate the colonies. Whereas on Rum, they are just out of the range of rats at about sort of just above 450 meters of altitude. Um, But then unfortunately, like the impacts of climate change are starting to become really apparent because they reckon that slightly milder winters and milder conditions are allowing rats to expand their range slightly further up the mountains and are starting to encroach on where the bank shearwaters are breeding. So starting to see like um, much reduced sort of productivity and survival of some of the nests. So, you know, it's a very it's such a precarious position, isn't it, for these species that rely on mountainous habitats they're like the the sort of canary in the coal mine really for a lot of the issues that we face like worldwide aren't they? Uh,
1: it's completely true they're such fragile habitats really despite being these uh, incredible monoliths in the landscape looking so strong the animals that live in them are often as I said really fragile. Um, yeah it's, there's a similar one maybe slightly higher than 400 meters, uh, it's one of my favorite favourite insects, um, just because of how weird it is. So one of the insects we have in, which go over the mountain passes in the Pyrenees is a type of midge, it's a Chironomid um, midge. And these are tiny creatures and they can't fly very well, but they might be able to choose which winds to migrate on. And as adults, and this is just for dispersal, I don't think it's real migration, but I mean time will tell and new, <clears throat> new stories will appear, but we, because they just disperse and the adults really don't live very long at all, just a few days, um, they're the ones, Chironomid flies are the ones you see in little pillars yeah looking like fairies I was going to say they go
0: up and down in almost like columnar sort of like oh they're fantastic yeah. exactly
1: and they're made those pillars we're kind of a bit off track now but those pillars are made up of males swirling and then the females basically come along and have a vague choice about which males but i mean as soon yeah. as they go into the pillar they get jumped Really, <laughs> but um anyway the yeah there's this crazy midge which doesn't live in the pyrenees it lives in the himalayas and it lives at least five and a half kilometers up seriously it's just incredible and it lives on a glacier and it's a type of midge called a diamesa midge another chironomid and there's um a guy called kashima in 1985 wrote a um a paper all about it i love really niche papers like this <laughs> yeah, of course and, <laughs> and the lava of these li- these midges they live in these streams which um like glacial streams that sometimes run under the glacier and the lava live in them and they eat micro plants so like algae and um and tiny tiny bacteria and things like that and over the course of the larval development period they slowly move down the stream like inevitably like because they don't have the strength to go up anymore and by the time that they metamorphosize into adults they're much much further downstream than when they started as eggs and so the adults emerge and they've got all this ground to make up but (laughs) amazingly these and despite their name fly the uh these flies don't have proper wings at all they're very um, reduced wings and uh, reduced antenna as well lots of things to conserve heat and so they're just kind of little cylinders it's quite good for conserving heat and so all they can do is walk and they when they emerge they all emerge kind of together and so they they mate with the males and then just the females the males just die their job is done and then the the females start off on this journey and just walking up the glacier back towards the the top of the stream so they can lay their eggs again, and which is amazing, just these tiny little insects doing this really quite a long journey. But they have to go, they go in a straight line and they, in part, use the slope gradients, nowhere to go, but also these minuscule insects, barely four or five millimetres long, will use the sun as a compass in order to, or at least use the sun in order to keep a straight line. And which means they must have some sort of internal clock as the sun moves across the heavens. So they may get up at dawn or something. No, it's in the east. And then yeah. they can have this position in their heads. And then as it moves across the sky, they'll be able to keep that position and then have the sun's location in the sky relative to where they want to go. Yeah, yeah. And they walk, they can walk about 40 centimetres per minute, which is quite fast for a small thing. Wow. And it's thought that they walk at least a, or they have found to be walking at least a kilometre up the glacier and, um, and probably further. And they do it in such cold temperatures. They've been seen to be active in minus 16 really? Celsius, Good. which I think is one of the coldest insect habitats or that you can find active insects wow. in. And at night, the um, the temperatures obviously plummet high up in the Himalayas, and so at night, the or even if it just gets a bit cloudy, the the tiny midges will bury themselves underground, under under the snow even, and where it's a bit more insulated and where it can get down to just freezing rather than uh, really really minus minus temperatures, but. I mean now they're back up at the very start of the or where they want to lay their eggs again but it's getting towards winter and so if they lay their eggs now they're very likely to die because eggs are fairly unprotected yeah. and, and the larva if they hatch they might not have anything to eat and, or maybe even the streams would freeze up and so amazingly for like the chironomid fly which as i said earlier the ones we catch only live for a few days yeah this one is able to always thought because it was found full of fat and full of eggs at the start of winter to actually overwinter um by burying itself under the snow so it's insulated and which is fascinating for such a tiny tiny fly to be able to do it sleeps under the snow um all winter and then relays its eggs in the summer or the early spring when the stream restarts and then the cycle just continues this incredible, incredible journey made by the female flies up and then down and up
0: and then down. Oh, so that's, cool. that's just, that's just mind blowing, isn't it? Something so small existing in such a harsh environment. I mean, that's, you know, the, these areas of mountainous habitats and such extreme conditions just precipitate such incredible adaptations and morphologies in species, don't they?
1: Exactly. Um, like, that sort of thing could not have evolved anywhere else no. it's so like so specialized to live yeah. in a glacier yeah and yeah. it just shows like the sheer variety of life yeah. and how important it is and yeah. also but of course we all know that the glaciers are uh uh are retreating massively due to climate change yeah. and so it's and we know so little i'm sure there's so much more yeah. fascinating stories like that that are yet to be found and potentially may never be found if we don't raise more awareness about these mountains and show the wonder of the mountains and that is something that this world or international mountain day uh, can really do
0: yeah absolutely i think it's so important to have these you know awareness raising events to really sp- throw a spotlight on the importance of conserving these habitats. I know it's the UN, you know, decade of ecosystem restoration and the mountains is really high up on the list of, you know, sort of goals to look at conserving. And even here in the UK, you know, we can see the impacts, you know, species that exist in these, you know, the very, edges of their range in Europe because they can only exist in such cold habitats like on the top of mountains. You've got like ptarmigan, which, you know, obviously they turn, you know, white plumage in winter to be able to um, blend into the snowy landscapes that we, you know, usually have had. But obviously with the threat of things like climate change, that might be completely dysfunctional if we don't have any snow cover. And then species that breed up in the mountains, like snow buntings on the tops of the cairngorms and dot um and all these species that exist in these places they're such a precarious thing but you know it is it is just so worth drawing attention and, and studying and researching these things like you are doing you know in the tops of mountain passes and in, in pyrenees it's such important work um but yeah that, that is an a, absolutely fascinating story i hope i hope people enjoy that i don't i don't think they were expecting to hear about mountain midges and Manx waters on uh, international yeah. <laughs> mountains day were they
1: <laughs> it's amazing what these animals can do anyway uh amazing seeing you talking to you ben um hopefully in a couple of weeks we will get up some snowdonia mountains together
0: fingers crossed that would be fantastic so nice one well
1: like. see you soon
0: see you soon